Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. As bad as the COVID pandemic is in the United States, we have the resources to confront it head on. But what about people in poorer countries around the world? To examine the state of the global pandemic and what we can do to fight it, I've invited Gina Cummins of Oxfam America and Dr. Vanessa Carey of Seed Global Health to the podcast. There are significant questions and criticisms about what the government's doing to pay for vaccines with taxpayer money and whether companies should be able to profit from it. In so many ways, the pandemic has really highlighted the chasm between the haves and the have-nots. And now a new study shows how rich countries are hoarding COVID-19 vaccines and the world's poor are set to miss out. This virus does not respect borders. A new alliance of NGOs is calling on governments and drug companies to create a fund to ensure everyone is protected, regardless of where they live. Hi, I'm Gina Cummings, and I am here fighting for a people's vaccine, one that is patent-free, mass-produced, distributed fairly to all people, rich or poor, no matter where they live on the globe. And to do that, we need the political will of the Biden administration and corporate leadership, and we need it today. Sorry, not sorry. Hi, I'm Vanessa Carey. One year into COVID, we stand at a critical juncture, and it's time to embrace the fundamental truth. The deep and long-term investments in health of the world's population are required for national, individual, and economic security for all, including here at home. Sorry, not sorry. Thank you both so much for being with me today. I'm really excited to speak with you both. Let's start with you, Vanessa. Can you give us an overview of what the state of the pandemic around the world looks like right now? Absolutely. Thank you very much, first of all, for having me on. It's a pleasure to be able to be here. And I think that we are one year into COVID and we are still seeing this pandemic wreak havoc all around the world in terms of the number of cases that we have seen globally, which are in the tens of millions to the number of cases that we've seen here in the United States. And people are still dying. And even as we have vaccines coming online that are creating an option for people to find a way out of this, hopefully, the reality is we're still going to see hundreds of thousands of deaths from COVID if we don't continue to practice things like social distancing, wearing masks, kindness, and finding a way to make sure that we are all safe, which is really through equitable distributions of vaccine. Yeah. And Gina, you know, I want to ask you, how is the medical infrastructure different in rich countries versus poor countries? 
Well, there is infrastructure, so that's a start, right? And there are protocols, which is a start. And there are resources, which are a start. So we don't often always see in some of the poorer countries, which is why moving forward, a way to distribute the vaccine that is accessible to everyone is super important. Scientists have done, you know, if you think about it, a really amazing job in this last year. We now have multiple safe and effective vaccines. And what we lack is the political will that we're going to need to increase the vaccine supply and the distribution all around the world. And it's one of the reasons that we're really pushing for a people's vaccine. And this is a vaccine that would be patent-free, that would be mass-produced, that would be distributed fairly, free of charge to every person, rich or poor, all around the world. And that is going to be pretty critical if we're going to get the kind of response that we're going to need moving forward. It really is amazing how this is something that is not just going to happen, like that a people's vaccine is something that we have to fight for. And I want to ask either one of you, what would you say is the responsibility of richer countries to those poorer countries? We live in a really small planet now. We are deeply connected by everything we do, by not just our humanity and our shared vulnerability to poor health, to our shared experience of wanting our families to thrive and be well, to just the fundamentals of wanting joy and laughter in our lives. But we are also linked through our economy. Our raw materials come from faraway places around the world. They're manufactured in another country, and then they're distributed from a third country, and then they show up in our house. And the reality is that beyond just the moral need for us, to be engaged in the well-being of all because we are human and we share so much. There's the really practical, the kind of enlightened self-interest of the fact that our ability to have things happen the way we like them to happen only happens if we're all safe and we're all well and we are connected. Countries are trying to do what's best for their own populations and at the same time trying to be good citizens of the world. And very quickly, as we saw the pandemic worsen in the spring, we had the development of the COVAX platform, which really brought together the World Health Organization, Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, each with areas of expertise. And together, they created a, a mechanism where the world could come together, figure out how to buy and equitably distribute vaccines around the world. There are now almost 190 countries and participants that have signed on to that model. And yet what we see is that something like 90% of all the vaccine doses that have been purchased have actually been done directly by countries, mostly middle-income and high-income countries, as opposed to low-income countries. From the beginning of this pandemic, I've been saying, as many others, that our individual national security is health security. And the fastest way to a better well-being is going to be to end this pandemic. So I think as a wealthy nation, we have not just the moral obligation, but we have an obligation to think about kind of how the whole world thrives. There's been some economists that have talked about this, this well-being agenda, and it's been most recently championed by the First Minister of Scotland, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, and the current Prime Minister of Iceland, all of whom have sort of talked about the fact that we shouldn't be measuring our 
our well-being by how much money we're making or what our global GDP is. We should be measuring well-being by the time spent with our families, the quality of our lives, and how all these other things come together to make things possible. And I think that in COVID, we have a real opportunity to also think about the values that we live and this moment for us to think about how we individually thrive more if the whole world is thriving. And in this moment where we see so acutely the effects of a pandemic and how it impacts every single person on this earth, I think we have an ability to lean into this moment and to really make ourselves better as we bring everybody up at the same time. And that we will all benefit from it, both from our economic bottom line, as well as just from that well-being metric. It really is. If we're not going to reflect now, when will we ever spend this time to really decide how we want to do things better and what's important, not only individually and as families, but as a nation, especially after the last four years that we've had and the perception of what our country is or has become. And speaking of our country, I'm hopeful that one of you can maybe walk us through the current vaccine rollout in the United States. I mean, I think it's getting better. Is that a fair assessment? It seems like it's getting better under Biden, but it was kind of a mess in the beginning. COVID anywhere is COVID everywhere. And I think we've come to understand that viruses don't know global geographic boundaries. We've learned nothing else the past year. We've learned that. And although corporations have done all they can to get us vaccines, there just simply aren't enough of them this year to vaccinate everybody. And we're seeing a terrible competition developing where those who have wealthy countries are doing everything they can to secure the vaccine and lower income countries really aren't able to join in the fight. The United States makes up 4% of the global population. And yet we've already secured 50%, almost 50% of Pfizer's total vaccine supply for this year alone. Now, UNICEF recently said that there are 130 countries around the world that have yet to administer a single dose of the vaccine. As a UNICEF ambassador, I've actually been in the field vaccinating. And part of the problem is there are a lot of challenges vaccinating people in countries with less wealth. Oftentimes, it's people riding a bicycle into very remote areas and remote villages and having a basket on the back of the bicycle that has vitamin A and D, polio vaccinations, things like that. Now, obviously, with the Pfizer vaccination and the Moderna vaccination, both need a special kind of refrigerator or freezer to keep those vaccines safe. Or if they've been out of that refrigerator for too long, they can't use them anymore. And obviously, this is not going to be helpful to people in, let's say, Angola or Kosovo or certain places in India. Logistics experts say part of Africa and Southeast Asia, Central Asia and Latin America lack the infrastructure for temperature-controlled storage for an immunization campaign to bring COVID-19 under control. 
Vanessa, tell me what are some of the challenges in vaccinating people in countries with less wealth? Absolutely. Just to frame some of these things and to answer a little bit, you know, the U.S. is now vaccinating almost 2 million people a day. We are moving. We are gaining speed. We are gaining experience. We've probably put about 50 million at least first shots into the arms of Americans. And there's 200 million Americans who are eligible for the vaccine. That's compared to about 100 million people all around the rest of the globe that have been vaccinated. So if you just think about that comparison, the U.S. is 330 million people and the world is another seven-ish billion. And so there's a deep discrepancy between where the vaccines are for the rest of the world. And about 75% of the world's population is not really slated to get vaccines at this point. And Pfizer and Moderna have been purchased almost exclusively by the U.S. and about six other countries, which are essentially Canada and Europe. So we're talking about a major divide in vaccine access, which is going to be because a of wealth, because of wealth and the way sort of economic structures have been established. That has really been part of it. It gets a little bit more complicated into who signed into COVAX and who didn't, which is the international consortium to sort of develop vaccines. But wealth has driven a lot of that. Just so my listeners really understand, I'm going to just really break this down. People who live in richer, wealthier countries have bought up the supply of the vaccinations that are available right now so that they are not available to countries with less wealth. And to put it in perspective, Canada has enough vaccine to vaccinate every member of its population five times. Right. With two different vaccinations, right? Because they have a surplus of both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccination. I only know this because I'm working in Canada right now. So <laughs> so I, that's the only reason why I, I know about their numbers. And it is crazy. But here's the truth. I think that we've always fallen into this time-honored trap of it's very hard to do things in these poor countries, and therefore we can't do these things. And there's been many people throughout history who have believed that, and some of it is understandable because there are great challenges there in infrastructure. But the work that, for example, I do with Seed Global Health, where we partner with governments in sub-Saharan Africa to train healthcare workers, which people say takes a long time. We've trained over 20,000 doctors, nurses, and midwives over the last eight years in partnership with government. It can be done. It's a question of political will. It's a question of resources. And it's a question of kind of the audacity to believe it's possible. And I recently did a panel with the head of the African CDC who pointed out that he's not afraid of that cold chain issue. He said, our burden of COVID is in urban centers. If you gave me the vaccine in a bunch of coolers at the stadium, I could vaccinate a ton of the very high risk people in our countries and shut the pandemic down or help support that. We can do these things if we try to. Same thing with PEPFAR, for example, which was the huge HIV program the U.S. put forth starting back in 2003, 2005, where we said we are going to commit ourselves to a single disease to find the end of this global pandemic. And that's what we started to do. We changed people's minds about what was possible in these places and how to actually stop a pandemic that was ravaging a continent because of commitment and political will and resources. And so I'm a huge believer that it's possible, but it's a question of the power and the money being willing to do the right thing in these tough moments and to think about how we all benefit from being able to have a thoughtful, comprehensive response. And so I think there's a big opportunity here in COVID for us 
to step up again into this moment and to solve this massive global problem as a global country, but in a way for those of us in America, for example, might be wondering how do they protect themselves? Our schools open faster. We go back to work faster if we get the whole globe over COVID. Because to give an example, and maybe Gina wants to comment too on the variants, you know, that's a problem because we aren't supporting other nations. I had two things. One is that this is a supply problem as well. We don't have enough doses. I often imagine it as if it's a pie. And no matter how big the pie or how deep the pie, you can only get X amount of slices out of that pie. And that's the situation we're in now where pharma companies have a monopoly over the supply, over the pricing and access. They and they alone are determining how many doses we make, how much to sell them for, where to sell them. And they are in turn artificially constraining the number of doses that are being made, the price that we're paying. And it really awards those countries who have more money to pay over those who don't. Oh, it's so frustrating. Yeah, where the people's vaccine to me is a real alternative to that single pie. Because the concept there is let's share our pie recipe. And that way we'll have way many more bakers and we'll have enough for everyone. And that's what we're really pushing for, allowing open licensing, which lets any drug manufacturer in the world have access to the vaccine recipe and the technical know-how needed to produce it. It will increase supply, it will lower prices. It'll help those with less resources compete on a more level playing field. So one is we have to open it up so that we can have more supply for people. The second thing I was going to say is really around mutants and the variants. Because if we don't begin to treat COVID as if anywhere is everywhere, we really do run the risk over time that we're going to have a boomerang effect. Because while we may in the U.S. be all vaccinated and ready to go, if the rest of the world isn't there, that increases the chance of mutations, more variants. And again, that comes back to us. So we may find ourselves a year from now in the same situation, even though we've all been vaccinated, where our vaccines don't work and things have gotten much worse around the world. So let me ask you this. What happens with COVID if only people in wealthy countries are vaccinated and treated? Does the pandemic just go on indefinitely? The pandemic certainly gets more entrenched and more complicated. You have a higher risk of mutations forming that will come back and be a problem for those wealthy countries because it will evade the vaccines that we have developed. And so that is certainly a problem. I think the global economy suffers as a result of it. Eventually, a viral variant that does have an evolutionary advantage will become the dominant form of the virus. Worldwide, there are 12 key clades or variants of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Sometimes the increased spread of a viral variant can only be attributed to chance. If a virus with a new mutation is carried by a super spreader, moves to a new uninfected location, or is introduced to a new segment of the population, its rate of spread will increase. At some point, we will get to a level of herd immunity in some capacity because we've seen this before 100 years ago with the Spanish flu. It took about two and a half years to kind of get over the pandemic, if you will. But there's big differences between now and then. The difference is the population is much bigger. 
We live in much more concentrated environments. We have climate change that has completely changed the world we live in and how things and diseases are transmitted. We travel a lot faster. You can get anywhere in the world in 36 hours now. And our economies are much, much more interconnected than they ever used to be. So it's very difficult to actually compare to that point 100 years ago. Yeah. And also just like deforestation. Like we are living closer to the animals that are actually transmitting these types of viruses. So between that and the fact it only takes at most 32 hours to get anywhere in the world, even the most remote areas, it's frustrating for me because it I can't wrap my head around why pharmaceutical companies and countries wouldn't want to create a people's vaccine, wouldn't want to vaccinate the entire planet to keep everyone safe. It's such common sense to me because it's not like a vaccine knows arbitrary lines in the sand where they're like, oh, no, we're not going to travel there because they have the vaccine. I cannot wrap my head around it. It's so frustrating. I was so appreciative to Oxfam reaching out to me and telling me about the people's vaccine. Let's just go through it step by step for all of my listeners on why this is important, what it is even, what it would be, and why it's so important. Sure. It is a vaccine that is patent-free, which is super important because it means others can have access to the recipe and the patent. It means that we have an opportunity to mass produce it, which we can't do right now. It means that because it can be produced in many different places, it could be distributed more fairly, more easily, right? Because it's not just all coming from one place. It pushes it out. It's free. We're hoping it's free. So it can get to everyone at the same time. One of the things that we really want to do is to rid the unevenness that is happening in the way that vaccines are being delivered right now, because the unevenness threatens us over the long haul. So we need everyone to be vaccinated and have access all at the same time now. And that is a huge undertaking, but it is one that Vanessa spoke to this earlier, but it is one that can be done. If you think about all that we've done in the last year, if we have the imagination, we're willing to think outside the box, not treat this as business as usual and make it happen. We can make it happen. It's crazy that this would be thinking outside the box, though. That's where my frustration is. That's how I feel. I can't imagine how the both of you feel and how frustrated you must be. So what about the numbers? I mean, break it down for me. What would it cost to vaccinate the world? And then maybe what would it cost if we don't? I think those are terrific questions. I actually don't know the total number of the cost that it would be to get vaccinated globally, because I think you'd have to factor in the price of R&D, you have to factor in the price of the infrastructure and distribution, and you've got to factor in whatever the pharmaceutical companies are trying to recoup. There's so many levels to that. I personally haven't seen what a global costing will. What I can tell you is that the WHO and partners through COVAX, which is the consortium that has really tried to bring together a bunch of different companies into which COVAX would invest to help create as many vaccine options as possible. And then also brought together 190 countries who'd be recipients of the vaccines that are developed. They asked for about $2 billion in investments last year in order to create the R&D, the marketing, and the trials, and they want $4.6 billion this year to manufacture and distribute. And that would get us to 20% vaccination for the entire world, if you will, minus kind of the few countries that are looking for 100% vaccination, like the U.S. and the six other countries. And then from there, you would continue to go. Prices drop, the more manufacturing capacity you tap into. Prices drop, the more competition you have of vaccine options on the market. So I think it's a very evolving question. 
is part of this getting the organizations that are already on the ground that have the infrastructure to vaccinate, give them access to the vaccines. So when UNICEF is out vaccinating a community in Angola, they can also vaccinate for COVID? Yes. I mean, ideally, we would lean into the existing infrastructure. We wouldn't want to build new infrastructure. And if we do this right, there's an opportunity to not only reinforce the existing infrastructure, but you could actually build the infrastructure that creates a network for primary care. What's very interesting is that a few short months before COVID became this global phenomenon, every single country in the world signed on to a political declaration for universal health care. Well, here's our opportunity to bring these two things together. We respond to COVID. But what if we also think about what it means to have the healthcare workforce we need, the infrastructure in place, oxygen to be responsive? I think that that's not, again, beyond the imagination. We do need to get shots in the arms of people as quickly as possible, and that should be the priority. But I still think there's opportunities for us, even as we're doing that, to look at ways to build connectivity and improvements in the health system, and also to really reinforce the importance of health. For a long time, health has been the victim of every other political deal, policy trade, conflict. It's never been prioritized. And you can see that throughout history. And it's absolutely crippled countries as a result. COVID-19 has battered the global economy, causing the worst recession since the Great Depression of the 1930s. It will be a new economy where many areas of the economy won't go back to the level of output that they had before. But when you have health, suddenly you have economic growth, you have better stability in a country, you have better national security, you have better governance, you have less corruption. There's really an opportunity to create sort of just, again, to go back to the original concept of well-being. And so what is the cost of not doing this? You can put it in economic terms. I mean, we are trillions, if not quadrillions of dollars behind in the global economy now. And the Institute of Health Metrics and the Gates Foundation recently said that we lost 25 years of development progress in 25 weeks. We know that Ebola, which was technically the outbreak in 2014, was only in three countries in terms of large outbreak. It was in six countries in total. When you look at some of the other cases that happened around the world, and 11,000 people died and about 24,000 people were infected in total, and that cost globally $53 billion. Imagine where we are now with COVID. So what do you say to people who think it's not our responsibility to pay for people's health care in other countries? It's a funny thing. I was thinking the other day, I was talking to my daughter, who's a college student, and she said to me, Mom, I hope this is all worth it. You know, I'm stuck in my dorm and I can't see my friends. And I thought to myself, what's the answer to that? Like someone's going to ask us one day, you know, we sacrificed. We didn't go to school. We didn't see our grandparents. We weren't there when someone passed. What did we do? Was it worth it? And I think that has got to be a thing that drives us, that at the end of this, we can stand up and say it was difficult, but we actually made a real difference in people's lives on this planet. It took a while but we got it done. I'm one of these people that has a lot of hope. I think we've done some amazing stuff this past year, but we're not totally there. And we need to dig in deeper and be able to answer that question for our kids and for our families, that we rolled up our sleeves as a society. And we didn't just do it for those of us who live in the US, but we did it for people all around the globe because it's in our self-interest, but also because it's right. And it's one of those opportunities to do something that is actually right for the world. I think it's super important. It's not just about our own self-interest, but it is because it is the right thing to do. And human beings are capable of anything. 
if we set our mind to it. I just don't understand how this isn't a priority to figure out. And I'm just so grateful to the work that Oxfam America is doing. Gina, will you just give us an overview of what Oxfam is doing and the work it does and how people can support that work? Sure. You know, we are working with a number of organizations. Vanessa's group is one, but there's hundreds who are working here in the U.S. and around the world to push for a people vaccine, to tell the story about what's actually happening in communities around the world. We're asking people to sign petitions, to talk to their members of Congress, to send messages to, in this case, our new President Biden, to say that it is not enough to vaccinate me and my family, but it is important to vaccinate all those people in communities that often get missed. A lot of them are in other parts of the world, but a lot of them are here in the U.S. as well. And so that is a lot of what we're doing, really trying to raise up the issue work with pharmaceutical companies to get them to behave in different ways and make the argument why this has to be a one-time different way of moving forward. Are there any scenarios where pharmaceutical companies have made vaccinations or drugs patent-free in the past? I know like neglected tropical diseases, things like elephantiasis and river blindness can actually be fought and eradicated in countries due to support from pharmaceutical companies donating the pills. Why isn't this happening? I think that patent rights are a long and thorny area that there's been a lot of international negotiation around. And actually next month, there's going to be a whole discussion about patent rights and waivers for developing countries through the World Trade Organization. So this is a very hot topic. What's incredibly exciting, though, is the new head of the World Trade Organization is a Nigerian economist and female. And Professor Ngozi is remarkable. And I think that that will help change the discussions considerably. That's exciting. It is. Lots of vaccines and medicines get donated or tiered priced or made more available. Seed Global Health was really founded with the recognition that healthcare is a human-centered intervention and the ability to deliver healthcare, quality healthcare, and to save lives in countries around the world that have had, um, you know, die unnecessarily of completely preventable diseases. For us, central to that is people doctors, nurses, midwives. And there's been huge movements to train health workers who have some skill sets and are able to kind of increase access. They're not able to sort of really train across the spectrum or to train the next generation. And so with the recognition that there's a global shortage of 18 million doctors, nurses, and midwives, we have partnered with governments to help fill those gaps and to train this next generation uh, and rising generation of healthcare providers who can not only provide care, but can train their successors and be agents of change themselves. And really believe that through a combination of on-the-ground work and advocacy about the importance of health and how you link those two, it can be transformative. And just to share a story, one of our educators who served as faculty in a country, she went for a year and on the arrival to her site within hours had a knock on the door and she's asked to come to the operating room where there was a woman on the operating room table who was dying. 
And she quickly realized that she was going to lose the mom. But our educator, who is an obstetrician, wanted to try to save the babies. She lost both twins in that moment. And she was incredibly upset, obviously, and reflected on it and said, well, maybe tomorrow will be better. And the next day, she was again called to the OR urgently. And this time, it was clear the baby had died, but she was determined to save the mom's life. So that's exactly what she did. She saved the mother's life through a life-saving procedure. But she not only saved that mom, she saved the five children who lived at home with that mother, who now have a mother to come home and care for them. And then she saved the lives of many women in the area in a country where one woman dies every hour from a complication of pregnancy and childbirth because she was able to teach her colleagues how to perform and when to perform that same procedure. That kind of ripple effect is what we're fighting for every day in our work. So for both of you, what is the call to action here for my listeners? What do we want them to do to help us with this mission of a people's vaccine for COVID? For me, one of the things that would help is I think our listeners, your listeners, have to call out the inequality that is underpinning the way that the vaccine is being rolled out currently. We in the U.S. have have heavily subsidized through our taxpayer dollars the research that's gone into COVID, about $10 billion of our taxpayer dollars. A newsreel from 1955 on the polio vaccine. An historic victory over a dread disease. The vaccine's inventor, Dr. Jonas Salk, literally gave it away. Who owns the patent on this vaccine? The people, I, I would say. There is no patent. This is... Could you patent the sun? Pandemia una crisis. 65 years later, Pope Francis thinks the COVID-19 vaccine should follow the polio precedent. It would be a scandal if our economic system, supported by public funds, contributes only to companies instead of the common good. Of course, pharmaceutical companies should be fairly compensated for waiving the patents. That's not a problem. But they've already made billions of dollars in revenue from sales of the vaccine. It is time to scale up. And that scale up means that we really have to break through some of the inequities that we're facing in order to get the vaccine out to everyone. This is not the time for a handful of companies or individuals to be getting uber rich while the rest of the people or everybody else is not getting access to the vaccine. So to me, one of the things that your listeners can do is really point out the inequities that exist that are really driving disimbalance in terms of how the vaccine is being distributed out there. The other thing would be to join our call to get President Biden use his power to really influence the companies to step up in this time. We're going to need a lot of political will, not just here in the United States, but with all the other European countries, Canada, all the rich countries. We need leadership. We need leadership from this president to say now is the time. So anything they can do to get that message, text, tweet, write, call, sign petitions, I think is going to be critically important. There is an open letter that Oxfam has put out that people can sign on to. Is that correct? Yes, it's an open letter. And we now have a petition, which we can make available. And they can find that on the Oxfam website? Yes. And Vanessa, what do you think? What is the call to action to my listeners on how we could get this done? 
I love this question because I think it's really important for everybody to remember that they're an agent of change in this world and that they can really through either signing on to these really critical campaigns that are being led by Oxfam and the People's Vaccine and others by activating letter writing campaigns to their Congress people and to really calling upon our leadership and government to help make the right choices in this moment. But it's also, I think, critically important to engage a conversation with your neighbors. We often live in these siloed worlds of like-minded people. Facebook is actually often designed to feed you the kind of things that you know you're going to like, right? Those are the algorithms is how do we keep you in the communities that you're going to feel familiar with and know? And I think it's really important to listen and to learn and to engage and understand the motivations of people that you're not always aligned with and to figure out where you have that common ground and then to help bring them into why this might be important for them too. And I think that that is the fundamentals of our political process in this country. It is the fundamentals of our neighborly duty and our engagement in our communities. But it has to be about not just siloing ourselves among those that are like-minded. It has to be about engaging, for lack of a better term, across the aisle, but also listening, right? Build that trust, build the rapport, find your common ground. And I think help bring people into the urgency of this moment and how they can help make a difference through their individual actions, but also for what they call for. Well said. We talk a lot on this podcast about getting out of your own echo chamber and how important it is to have the tough conversations with people that you don't necessarily agree with. And I think it's really important, especially when we're trying to connect because we can't connect physically right now. So thank you for that. And my last question is for each of you. And I always finish up the podcast with this question. So what gives you both hope? I am an optimist, even in the most difficult of times. And I truly believe and I am hopeful that we already have the tools that we need to end this pandemic and that we will be able to end COVID and that we can be more united in our shared understanding of our common vulnerability of the things that we all need and hope for in the world, and that health and education and kindness are the values that we can put first and foremost as we learn from everything we've been through. And how about you, Gina? You know, I believe in resilience. I have just come to believe over time that people are incredibly resilient. This last year of watching us do things we never thought we were going to do, I have literally worked in this room for almost 365 days. You know, the working from home, the teaching our kids from home now, the learning how to show love from a distance to our family and friends in Zoom box squares and with signs outside of nursing facilities, the fact that we have a vaccine. I think we could do anything. And I think we can do anything because we have imagination and we're willing to roll up our sleeves and we're willing to believe. And so that gives me hope, even when things seem really tough, that we can do this because we are resilient people. That is like, for me, is grounding and it kind of keeps me going. We are going to one day walk out and hug people and kiss people and have parties together. And we're not going to just do it because we live in the United States. We're going to do it because we believe in a good world. We're going to make it happen. Well, Gina and Vanessa... You both give me hope. Thank you for all that you do and for being a part of the podcast. We all want to end the pandemic and reopen the economy. But to do so, we need a COVID-19 vaccine. 
that is available to everyone. A people's vaccine. For years, drug companies have raised the price of our medications while receiving billions in taxpayer dollars. Now, the U.S. government has given them 10 billion of our tax dollars to develop a vaccine. Yet, the drug companies will still hold complete control over the price and own the patents for medicines we paid to invent. Sound unfair? That's because it is. We need a people's vaccine that is free for everyone, everywhere. Without a people's vaccine, there's no guarantee of a treatment that's affordable and accessible to all. Where you were born and how much money you have shouldn't determine whether you live or die. A people's vaccine will be affordable and distributed fairly based on need, not ability to pay. Across the world, drug companies are getting rich while millions cannot afford care. A people's vaccine is a chance for change. It's this simple. COVID-19 vaccines invented with taxpayer dollars must be made available for free to everyone who needs them. It's time for a people's vaccine. The United States is one of the wealthiest nations in the history of the world. But what is that worth if we can't use that wealth to lift everyone around the globe? We can't be the moral leader of the world if we don't use our resources for the good of all people. Wealth should not provide exclusive access to health. And let's be clear, in a global pandemic and a world where people can travel thousands of miles a day, if we don't provide safe and effective vaccines to people around the world, we're not safe at home. Viruses don't care about borders. You can't build a wall and expect it will keep COVID out. Investing in vaccines and global healthcare infrastructure is not only the right thing to do morally, it's the right thing to do for our own health and safety. We can't just put our heads in the sand and pretend that the pandemic around the world is someone else's problem. It's not. It's our problem. The efforts of Oxfam, of Seed Global Health, of the World Health Organizations, of UNICEF, and of other organizations around the world is some of the most important work happening right now. Please call your members of Congress today and tell them you support a people's vaccine for everyone around the world. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. 